This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. If you're taking a road trip this spring, or even just spending a lot of time commuting or shuttling kids around, having an audiobook ready can make all that time so much more enjoyable. Did you hear about Kitty Carr by Crystal Smith Paul is a glamorous new release set in old Hollywood that will have you sitting in the driveway, still listening, because you just have to finish another chapter. And it was just chosen for Reese's Book Club. In the novel, movie star Kitty Carr Tate dies and bequeaths her multi-million dollar estate to three young, wealthy black women, prompting questions and controversy. The audiobook is read by Ariel Blake, Kaneta Kanutu, and Lynette Nicholas, and is perfect for fans of The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Start listening to Did You Hear About Kitty Carr by debut author Crystal Smith-Paul now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro-Kopinski, and today I'm so excited to have Patty Callahan-Henry back on the podcast to discuss her new historical novel, The Secret Book of Flora Lee, which is set outside Oxford in the hamlet of Binsey and involves a missing sister, a mysterious fairy tale, and a lost love. Patty is a New York Times, Globe and Mail, and USA Today bestselling author of 16 novels, She's also a podcast host of original content for her novels, Surviving Savannah and Becoming Mrs. Lewis, and the co-host and co-creator of the popular weekly online Friends in Fiction, live web show and podcast, which I love. A full-time author, mother of three, and grandmother of two. She lives in Alabama with her husband. Patty, thank you for coming back on the show. I've so been looking forward to chatting with you. Oh, Laura, I always love talking to you. Um, and especially now with the book coming out, it's so fun to be able to talk about the book and where it came from. And I love listening to your podcast. I loved your last interview with Eleanor Shearer. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, isn't she yeah. so fascinating? Oh, she's wonderful. Her book was just another fascinating read. There's so many great historical novels coming out these days. So it's, it's a lot of fun. And as soon as I sort of heard about the premise for the secret book of Laura Lee. I was just captivated anything with Oxford, which, you know, we talked about last time I had spent some time there and um, you've written books with that as the setting and you capture that so well. And then that we sort of have a book at the heart of this. Um, there's a bit of a mystery. So um, I just sort of loved getting swept away by this story and the fascinating history involved. So um, for anyone who hasn't gotten to um, pick it up yet, can you tell us more um, about The Secret Book of Flora Lee? I can. I can tell you as much as you want to know. Um, <laughs> the, the Secret Book of Flora Lee grew out of a fascination I had when I was writing Once Upon a Wardrobe. And discovered the name of the operation that sent children out of the cities and into the country during the Blitz. And we all know that children were sent away. It's, it's how The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe starts. There have been loads of, of things written about this particular operation. But what I didn't know is that it was called Operation Pied Piper. And for anyone who loves legends and myths and folk tales, the legend of the Pied Piper is a German legend, which is fascinating because let's remember this is World War II. And it is a legend about a piper who plays a flute and lures the children out of the town and they disappear forever. Now there's varying 
um, there's varying ways of telling the legend and it's much more complicated than that, obviously. But I thought to myself, why would they name uh, Operation to Keep Children Safe after a legend of lost children? And so the story grew out of that. And here we go. The year is 1939 when we meet the Linden family with 15-year-old Hazel and five-year-old Flora Lee and their mom. The edict has come down from the government that all children must be sent away to the countryside to be safe from possible incoming German bombs. Well, over four days, over 800,000 children were loaded onto trains with a knapsack, a luggage tag around their neck, a gas mask, and a postcard that they would send to their families when they found out that where they were going. Because these children had no idea where they would end up or how long they would be gone. But Hazel and Flora Lee got lucky. They were one of the few. And they ended up with the Aberdeen family in the small and lovely hamlet of Binsey, right outside of Oxford, England, in the Oxfordshire countryside. It is there that they settle in. There is a lovely mom named Bridie and a son named Harry. But Hazel keeps Flora Lee calm by making up a story, a fairy tale world where only the two of them can go. It is a secret between them. No one else can go there. They tell it at night. They tell it while they're playing in the woodlands. And this secret fairy tale world is called Whisperwood. It is in Whisperwood that they can be anything they want. Well, a year goes by and the unthinkable happens when Flora Lee disappears. Everyone believes she has drowned in the River Thames as it flows right through Binsey and she was playing at the river's edge. Hazel feels great guilt because she believes that Flora Lee went to look for Whisperwood. Now, 20 years have passed and Flora Lee has never been found. The mystery has never been solved. Hazel is working in an antiquarian bookshop in London when a package comes through the back door. It is wrapped in parchment paper. She unwraps it, unties the red ribbon, and inside are original illustrations along with a fairy tale book written by an American author called Whisperwood. And that's what the story is about. Uh, There's so many interesting elements. And, you know, I think for people who have read um, some World War II novels, we might have heard of children being evacuated or heard of Operation Pied Piper. But I think it's so different to follow this one family, these two sisters, and what that really meant for their lives, for for their mother, for their relationships, what it's like to have to sort of find a new home, be raised by a different person. Just it really puts faces to um, when they talk about millions of children. It's just very different when you read about, you know, just a couple in particular and just kind of are imagining what that all would have been like. And that got me wondering kind of how you went about really building those characters and what their experiences would have been like. Did you read a lot of interviews from children that had been evacuated or families that took them in? How did you go about that? 
Yes, I did. There's there's some really great books on that time. I'm looking at some of them right now and they are about there. So I've read interviews. I have read um, critiques of it because many believe now that we are all these years out that it it caused great damage to the children, that maybe it just wasn't worth it. And I allude to that in the novel, that the damage done to families, the damage done to families who were separated from their loved ones, sisters and brothers were separated. I actually interviewed a survivor. She is now in her 90s. And I wrote a short story, a fictionalized account of her experience um, that you can get if you pre-order the book or after the book comes out, it will be available on my website. But I interviewed her. And what was fascinating to me is that she could remember so much of it. And she was in her 90s. She could remember the family she was shuttled around to. She could remember when they took her little brother and put him with a different family. And then she remembered when her mother finally said, enough is enough, and came to get them. And they moved to the coast together. So I wanted to tap into that feeling, not from a parent's perspective, although you hear from their mom, this story is totally told from the children's perspective. And I think that's the difference in any of the novels that have been written about this time period is that very rarely do we hear from the kids. And after reading the interviews in these books and reading what the children went through, I wanted to look, and it's dual timeline, 1939 and 1960. And I wanted to look at their experience and how that experience influenced who they are as adults, what we bury, what we don't remember. And the last thing I asked the the, the evacuee that I interviewed, I said, did you and your mom or you and your brother ever talk about this time? And she looked at me so like tilt of the head oddly and said, no, we never talked about it. And then she said, I know. And then she said, is that odd? And I said, I don't know if it's odd. It's very British, but (laughs) I don't know if it's odd. But yet, even though she never talked about it with her family, she had these in indelible memories of every family and where she went and what she did. So this time lives inside these children and yet they um, rarely talked about it. And I haven't read anything about it until now. Right. Well, and it's interesting how at different points in time, certain aspects of the war maybe pique the interest of writers. I recently also read this probably I lost was on my mind, the lost English girl, which um, yes. also has to do with evacuees, but that's very much, it's interesting. You, you say that about the children's perspectives. That's very much seeing sort of the anguish of that whole situation through the mother's eyes, um, not the children's, but they're such nice compliments to each other. And as I was reading, I just kept thinking, Oh, it's so interesting that like two authors, were kind of fascinated by the same aspect of World War II and like what what must be kind of like in the air at the same time to kind of be peaking peaking the same interest of the um, a similar part of, of history. Um, but um, it is fascinating because I mean 
I'm a, I'm a woo-woo creative, right? So are you. And yeah. I do believe that there are these ideas that almost like a river that, that flow through. And it, there are, I think, four books out right now about this time period. And those are only the ones I know about it. We have The Lost English Girl by Julia Kelly. And then we have The Last, the no, The Lost English Girl, then The Last Lifeboat by Hazel Gaynor. And then my book, and, and the lifeboat is about the children evacuees who were sent off on a ship to Canada that was torpedoed by a German U-boat. Um, and, and, and it's fascinating to see that there's one idea, which is what happened to the children who were sent away. And yet I zoom in on the Pied Piper legend and on the, the experience of the children and on what it means to be torn away. And yet they focus on, on a totally other aspect. And, and they're great compliments because I think when you look at an overarching history, it the universal lies in the particular, right? Like we right. know that. That's why we write. Because the these universal emotions that we feel, whether it's abandonment or exile or loss or fear or unknowing, it all comes down to the particular. And for me, in the secret book of Flora Lee, the particular was in the children's experience. So one thing that that makes me think about, I I was just thinking about how you're trying to bring to life things based on real experiences of Operation Pied Piper. And of course, you want to get the historical details right and really bring that world to life accurately. But then you're also trying to tell this fictional story about fictional characters. And I just wonder about the push and pull of that, like trying to figure out where do I have to get the the events that actually took place in there? And where can I put in my fictional events and characters? And do you struggle at all with like, well, would this have actually happened? And would that have actually happened? And I don't know, it's something I struggle with myself. So I was just curious how you approach that, the blending oh. of the fiction and the fact. Oh, 100%. So my philosophy, and it was the same when I wrote Becoming Mrs. Lewis or Wardrobe or Surviving Savannah, is this. View the story, let's pretend the story is a person, right? So what is what are the bones of the story? What are the facts I do not want to sway from? What are what are the what is the solid framework? And and Mrs. Lewis was about a person, surviving Savannah was about an event, and this is about an event. So when I choose the thing that is factual that I don't want to veer from that is the structure, the bone structure of this person. That is what I do not veer from. That is what I do not fictionalize. So for the secret book of Flora Lee, it would be the timing. It would be the actual operation. It would be the town of Binsey, the town of Oxford, the town of London or the city of London. And those things are the bones of this person. So the next thing that would go on it would be the skin. And that would be the descriptions of this, the descriptions of the operation, the descriptions of the place and the time. Those I am sticking with the facts. But the clothes that I put on this person, those are the imagined parts. Those are how I dress up this structure. So for The Secret Book of Flora Lee, the characters are completely imagined. They are not based on every 
anybody who is real. They are not based on a person. The fairy tale world is a world I created. The sisters are, are, I don't feel like I created them. I discovered them. And so when I bring them into this very real world, when I bring them into Binzi and Oxford and 1939 and 1960, I'm bringing them into the facts. So when I'm doing my research, if I find something interesting or if I'm looking for something I need, it's so easy to get fall down what we call rabbit holes. I know you do the same thing, Laura. And yep. and sometimes those rabbit holes are really fruitful because I find something interesting that I pull out and use, right? So three hours of research is one sentence. And yet at the same time, I'm trying, and I make mistakes, um, but I'm trying to make sure I stay absolutely true to whatever framework I decided. And for this book, that framework was the historical time period. So you would then even um, like know that, all right, this is the time of year it was when that and the season where that neighborhood in London was getting bombed hard or was, or is that even like too nitty gritty? No, I get that nitty gritty because for example, interesting. For example, there is a scene in the book where, um, the refugees, it's a very small scene, but it's a scene where the refugees from Dunkirk are brought to a tent city on the pasture across the river from Binzi. So the girls can see for the first time the world, the war seems real to them because they have been these two sisters. They have been very Cosseted. They've been very protected from what is going on in the outside world in this small hamlet of Binzi, except for the things they hear, except for the newspapers they see in Oxford, except for the chatter about. They don't see it. And yet when the soldiers arrive from Dunkirk, right on they can they can look across the river and see this tent city and watch them. And so for that, I needed to make sure it happened exactly when I when it did happen, It that they would have seen exactly what I'm describing they saw. Now, these aren't real people who saw this, but anybody living in Binzi in that month of that year at that time, that is what they would have seen across the river. It is what they would have witnessed, the injured, the soldiers. And in the scene, I have... Flora Lee believing that maybe we know at the beginning of the novel that her father has died and we have her have this childish hope that among those wounded soldiers, her father might be there. So to have that scene, I needed to make sure that every, everything about the Dunkirk soldiers being in that pasture land was accurate. So that's just a small example. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Well, as you were kind of doing your research and and writing, is there anything that really surprised you that uh, turned you in it to take with a character or something that was a big change made in revision um, that winds up like being very different in the finished book from an early draft? Yeah, there. I think there always is when you're dealing with historical fiction. I I remember interviewing a. Uh, a museum curator for Surviving Savannah, which is about a a historical shipwreck in 1838 out of Savannah. And she used this phrase that I have stolen from her with permission and credit. 
Um, and that phrase is emancipating the past. So there, what's interesting to me about historical fiction is taking out this one thing you might find that flips the story you think you know on its head, right? Like you're emancipating these these truths that have been buried under either the mythology, the legend, or the retelling over and over of a certain event. And for me, it all began, what, what I found fascinating that I found out was that it was called Pied Piper. And the Pied Piper of Hamelin is a terrible um, legend of disappeared children. And it's a German legend. And so that fact in my research really sent me down this down this path to discovering what was the children's experience. Now, the other thing that happened, and it wasn't from my research, is that the ending changed from the first draft. I had oh, finished. Interesting. Yeah. And maybe that was even the fifth draft because there were many drafts of this novel. And um, I'd finished the novel. And my agent was thrilled with it. Everybody was thrilled with it. We were set to take it out to market. And I said, hold on, I am not as happy with the ending as I want to be. And they're like, no, the ending is fantastic. It's perfect. It, and it was during January of last year. And I finally, I guess, not finally, but I didn't, I thought I had escaped COVID and I had not. And so last January, January of 22, um, I spent January just moaning and laying on the couch and feeling sorry for myself and binge watching Netflix. And I watched Mayor of Easttown. Laura, have you seen Mayor of Easttown? I have not, but it's, it's on my list. I've heard such good things. Oh, it's so good. And, you know, it's Kate Winslet and it's a mystery about a small child's murder and the last episode takes your breath away because you didn't see the ending coming. And at the same time, you're like, well, of course. And I said to myself, I want that. I want the, you didn't see it coming, but of course. And I sat with it. And at three o'clock in the morning, one morning, I was like, it was in there already. The ending was in the the person and the place and the thing already existed in the novel. So it wasn't a rewrite of an ending. It was a tweaking of an ending. And so that is the biggest thing that changed. But I do so much research as I go along that not a lot about the time period or or any of that changed. But the biggest surprise to me was the name of the operation and also how many children were sent away, millions of children. Right. And in four days, 800,000 of them. That's crazy to think about and that's just so interesting about the ending because that is exactly it like I'm shocked but also of course I won't give anything away but yes that's so that's so fascinating that it wasn't always that ending no um yeah so I know that you have also written a lot of um, contemporary fiction projects and it seems like more historical lately and I was just curious like does one or the other pull you more lately and in the past, have you kind of gone back and forth, like working a little bit on a contemporary book and a little bit on a historical? I'm just sort of wondering about the different genres. I didn't switch with some kind of, I'm not a big planner. I wish I was. Um, so it wasn't like I sat down one day and said, I'm now going to write historicals. What happened is I wanted to write about Joy Davidman, who is 
the subject of my novel, Becoming Mrs. Lewis. She was this fascinating New York poet, wife, and mother, atheist who ended up marrying C.S. Lewis. And I wanted to write about her. And when I was done, I was told it was historical fiction because it was set <laughs> in the 1950s. And what I loved about that novel, so much I loved about that novel, but one of the things I loved the most was the actual historical research. Now, before I was an author, I mean, I was always a writer, but before I was a published author, I was a nurse. And for a while during graduate school, I was a research nurse. So I have always loved research. And when I finished becoming Mrs. Lewis, I was like, this, this is my jam. I want, and these places and events and pull, like I use that term, emancipate them from the past, pull them out and try to tell a fascinating story as best I can about a time that already has its own mythology, legends, and and kind of misunderstandings. Um, so no, I have, from the minute I wrote that book, I was fast and furious down the historical fiction road, and I don't see turning off it, but I didn't see turning onto it either. So who knows, Laura? Oh, that's so interesting. Hello, Bookish Home podcast listeners. Thanks to our friend and host, Laura, for inviting me, Robin Witten, the editor and founder of Audiophile Magazine, to celebrate the 14th year of our beloved audiobook program for teens. It's called Audiobook Sync, and it launches on April 27th. Teens anywhere and everywhere, including international teens, can get 28 free audiobooks during the 14-week program. We have fantasy, fiction, and romance audiobooks, and really there's an audiobook to please every ear. So go to audiobooksync.com to register and find out more about Audiophile's free program and the free audiobooks for teens. And you can also find us at Audiobooksync on Twitter and Instagram. Well, you know, we all enjoy sinking into your book so much, and it's always um, a treat to know um, your next book is out and ready for us to read. And I just am wondering if there are any books lately that you've really been just loving diving into and that you'd want to recommend to listeners. I do. I just finished Homecoming by Kate Morton. So I'm a huge Kate Morton fan, and it's been five years, I think, since her last novel, The Clockmaker's Daughter. And um, I loved it. It is set in it is set in London and Australia. And it rings all my favorite historical fiction bells from the setting to the family secrets to the young mother and grandmother and granddaughter, um, the back and forth in time, the slow reveals. It's it's a really amazing book. I I, I loved it. Oh, I'll definitely have to link to that and, and check that one out. Well, Patty, I've so enjoyed getting to talk with you about the secret book of Flora Lee. I really hope listeners go pick it up at their local bookstore and get those library holds in because I think it's going to be um, flying off the shelves. And um, of course, if people aren't already tuning in, so enjoy um, watching Friends in Fiction or listening to the podcast episodes. And just thank you again for taking the time to come on. Oh, Laura, I always love talking to you. And what great questions. It's ma- it makes me... Look at the book in different ways when you when you ask things like that. So thank you so much for having me. 
For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review wherever you get your podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.